Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to John chapter 6 this morning as we continue in our series of the book of John. Um, We've not only moved into the last year of his earthly life, but we've also come to the fifth signpost miracle today. We call them signpost miracles. Thank you, my sister. That's good. We call them signpost miracles because the miracle was not the most important part. That was a surprise to many people in Jesus' day, and it still is in our day. Let me see if I can illustrate it to you this way. Uh, Most of you, I would assume, have headed north on I-75 at some point. And if your destination is, let's say, Georgia, somewhere along I-75, you're going to see a sign that says something about Georgia, either a city in Georgia and how far it is to get there. Now, when you see that sign, you don't stop and pull over and get out of the car, run up to the sign and say, look at that, Georgia is so beautiful. You don't do that because you're not in Georgia yet. You're still in Florida, right? So the signpost is not the destination. The signpost is merely pointing to the most important thing, and that is your destination. And so it is with each one of these signpost miracles in the book of John. They are miraculous. They are supernatural. They really happened. But they point to the deity of Christ. They draw attention to the fact that the one who is performing these miracles is God himself, and that's what matters most. Now, the recent one of these signpost miracles that we looked at last Sunday in the, was the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, if you remember, if you were with us, you remember that Jesus turned five loaves and two fishes into a feast that fed 5,000 men and their families on that day. Everybody went away from that meal satisfied, as my Sicilian grandmother would say. They had a panzacchina, a full belly. And so after that miraculous meal, the crowd wanted to make Jesus king because they were impressed by the miracle. But Jesus was having none of that. He wasn't about to be the king that they wanted because he was already the king that they needed. And friends, that's still true today. There will always be a desire and an effort to reinterpret Jesus into someone he's not. You don't believe me, just watch the History Channel. He didn't let the crowd do it then, and he won't let us do it today. Jesus is who he is, not who we might want him to be. He's God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's fully God, yet fully man. And he's Messiah, the one who is revealed in the Old Testament. So in John 6, this impossible feast that we looked at last Sunday took place early in the evening on a particular day, and the events of the passage that we're about to read this morning began later that same night. So let's stand together in honor of reading God's word, and let's see what happens next, shall we? We're going to be in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. The word of God says this, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. 
The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd, remained on the, other, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated today. Now, as we begin to work our way through this passage, I think it's important to point out a couple of things. One, this incident is found in two parallel passages that I've included on your sermon notes if you printed them out today, but they are Matthew 14 and Mark 6. And I'll refer to those a bit this morning because there are some notable differences that we'll need to, uh, to look at together. But it's also important to note that at this moment, the moment that we just read, it's not the same moment as when Jesus was asleep on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. You remember that story? A sudden storm came up and the disciples had to wake Jesus up and he got up and he calmed the storm. That did happen on the same body of water as our passage that we just read, but it's, a, it's another incident altogether. It's found in the other three gospels, not in John's account. But for this miracle today, I believe we can break it up into three components. <clears throat> Number one would be the Lord's intentional rescue. Number one on your outline would be the Lord's intentional rescue. That's really what we see in verses 16 through 21. Now, if I may, I'd like to ask you a question as we consider this rescue. And the question is this, how sovereign do you believe God is? Do you believe that he's fully in control of all things in the universe? Do you think he's kind of in control, maybe of some things but not other things? Or do you believe that he's not in control at all? Maybe you believe God created it all, but like a child who sort of plays with a spinning top, God pulled the string and got everything in motion, spinning, and then walked away. And he's now hands off. The reason I ask that question is because our view of God's sovereignty will most certainly affect the way that we respond to the storms in our life. If you have a high view of God's sovereignty, you'll respond one way to your storms. And if you have a low view of God's sovereignty, you'll respond in a completely different manner to the personal storms in your life. But the question behind that question is what standard informs your view of God's sovereignty? Is it your experience? 
is sort of what you figured out over the course of your life? Or is it an external standard that is beyond you? See, for the person who follows Christ, the standard that informs our view of all things, including God's sovereignty, is the Bible itself. And the Bible makes it clear that the storm we just read about is his storm. It's letter A on your outline, his storm. Friends, all storms are God's storms because God is sovereign over all things. The Matthew 14 and Mark 6 accounts make it clear that Jesus forced the disciples to take this boat ride even though he didn't initially get into the boat with them. We'll talk about why he did that in a bit, but let me ask you, did Jesus know this storm was coming? Did he know? Yeah, you better believe he did. He had everything to do with it. They didn't know, but he did. Had they not been compelled by Jesus to go, they probably wouldn't have gone. These are seasoned fishermen, and the further that they go out, the worse it gets. Verse 17, we see it's dark. Verse 18, we see that the sea is rough and a strong wind was blowing. It's not looking good for these guys. But as we've already seen in this study, Jesus has power over the natural world and that's because he's God. He was present in Genesis 1 when the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created all things in the universe. And the word of God testifies to the fact that all storms belong to him. Let me give you a couple examples of that. In Jeremiah 14, the Old Testament prophet asked a rhetorical question. He asked, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Psalm 147.8 says of God that he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the hills. And in Job 37 verses 10 and 11, it says by the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. Want me to keep going? We could be here all day because the Bible is full of statements like this that attest to God's sovereignty in all things, including the weather. And the Bible is our standard by which we understand the extent of God's sovereignty. It testifies that all storms are his storms because they are. Friend, are you going through a storm in your life? All storms are God's storms. If they weren't, who would we turn to for help? Whatever the storm you're going through right now, turning to him and trusting in him is the right response because it's his storm. And we see that more clearly as we look at the disciples' response. Letter B on your outline is the disciples' response. Look at verse 19 in your Bibles. It says that they rode for three or four miles which means they're barely halfway there at this point and they've been rowing for several hours and now it's the early part of the next morning. You ever rowed a boat for three miles against the wind in the dark for hours? These guys were exhausted. 
And then when they see Jesus walking on the water through the storm, look at the end of verse 19. It says they were what? Come on, it says they were what? It was frightened, that's right. The Greek word is phobia, an intense fear. And the two parallel passages state that they thought Jesus was a ghost. (laughs) So think about it. Their response to the storm is exhaustion and fear. Now, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands this morning, but I bet like me, there have been times in your life where you have responded with exhaustion and fear to the storms in your life. But the crazy thing is, this storm is coming just hours after Jesus made a supernatural provision providing food for everyone. And these disciples walked away with a basket of leftovers just hours ago. But in this stormy moment, their question is, will Jesus provide again? Oh, we saw him provide on the green grass. But Lord, will you lead us beside still waters? I bet most of us in this room would admit that we've asked that question a time or two. Will Jesus provide in the storm? And friends, he always does provide in the storm. Many times it's not in the manner that we thought he would or maybe even the way that we asked that he would. He didn't do that here. It's a very unusual way for him to provide. Adrian Rogers said, those water molecules in the sea that night heard the command of their creator to join hands and they obeyed and held Jesus up. Now, who would have thought that's how the Lord would have provided in this storm? Certainly not the disciples. They doubted he would provide and that's where their fear came from. We're no different. Yet in the midst of their fear, Jesus makes his declaration in verse 20. Look at verse 20 in his Bible, in your Bible. What is his declaration? It is I. Do not be what, church? Afraid. Brothers and sisters, this is what our patient and kind Savior says to each one of us who belong to him. He reminds us of this in the storm when we forget who he really is. That's what the disciples have done. They didn't even recognize him until this very moment when he says, it is I. And by the way, this is not the only time in the Bible where we find the command, do not be afraid. In fact, you may have gotten an email forwarded to you or seen a social media post by a well-meaning Christian that claims that the phrase, do not be afraid, is in the Bible 365 times, one for each day of the year. That's so sweet, but it's just not true. It's not true. By the way, just a tip, be careful of learning your theology through emails that have been forwarded to you. Um, Do not be afraid in the proper context here that we're talking about is used about 80 times in the Bible. That's still a bunch. But if Jesus had just said it one time, it's still true. It was true for the disciples in their storm and it's true for every disciple in the midst of a storm today. Do not be afraid. This declaration is a reassuring statement of Jesus' presence, but it's also a command. Don't miss that. Do not be afraid is a command. So that means when we fear, when we're terrified, when we're anxious, when we're stressed, we have forgotten who God is. 
and we are sinning because we're breaking a clear command of scripture. And do not give yourself a pass by saying, oh, I'm just a worrier. It's just how God wired me up. Or I'm a mama who cares. I've heard that one before. Give me a break. Fear of anything other than God is sin. And sadly, too many Christians play right along with, with today's culture where we fear the things in the world, but we do not fear the sustainer and creator of the world. We fear for our future, we fear for our health, our livelihood, we fear for our country, fear for our children. The list is endless. But for all those who trust in Christ, when we fear, we are mocking the sacrifice Jesus made, which actually secured our assurance. That's the insanity of sin. Brothers and sisters, our confidence is to be in Jesus. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul asked a great question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword? No, he says. In all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus died not so we would give in to the fears of this world, so that we would live unafraid, confident in him. The one we can't be separated from regardless of the storm. It is I, do not be afraid. That's our Lord's declaration and what his declaration does here is it reveals the disciples' need. That's letter D on your outline, the disciples need. You know, this is not so much an account of Jesus getting them out of the storm as it is of Jesus finding them in the storm. That's important. Again, the wind and the waves are raging and it's dark. They have no idea where Jesus is. But when he says, it is I, do not be afraid, what do they do in verse 21? They welcome him into the boat. Verse 21 says they were glad to do that. Some of your translations say they were willing to take him into the boat. I bet they were. I would be. But the ESV captures it best with glad because in the Greek that word means to strongly desire. Well, they wanted him to be with them. And that just demonstrates what was true of them is true of us. Our need is to be with Jesus. I'm gonna say that again. Our need is to be with Jesus. It's what every disciple needs. It's why we gather together on the Lord's day to be with Jesus and his people. It's why we spend time daily in God's word, being with Jesus. It's gonna be the best thing about heaven, being with Jesus. And Peter walking on the water was a great example of that. Say what you want to about old Peter. But he wanted to be with Jesus so bad he got out of the boat. And if he got a little wet trying to be with Jesus, he figured the Lord would take care of that and he was correct. Now I realize there's no mention of Peter walking on the water here in John 6. That's in Matthew's account, not here. Well, why doesn't John include that? I don't know. <laughs> Except that the Lord didn't want John to include it. But regardless, you and I are to be encouraged today, brothers and sisters, because Jesus always finds his disciples, regardless of the storm that they might be in. He intercedes. He knows our biggest need is to be with him. And so finally, within this intentional rescue, we finally see his deliverance. 
It's letter E on your outline, his deliverance in the second half of verse 21. Now from both Matthew 14 and Mark 6, we know that the storm immediately stopped when Jesus got in the boat. So we call this whole thing a miracle, but it's actually like four miracles. Jesus walking on the water, Peter walking on the water, albeit briefly, then the immediate ceasing of the storm, and now in verse 21, John adds this supernatural blip where they're right at the shoreline near Capernaum, which was their original destination. Looks like one miracle, but it's actually four. And that speaks to the fact that God is always working more through the storm than we realize. Remember, Jesus compelled these disciples to get in the boat at the beginning of this. And again, we know that not from John, but from Matthew 14 and Mark 6. So no surprise, with a sovereign Savior, all of this is intentionally being orchestrated by our Lord. See, Jesus' rescue here is about compelling the disciples to do something they didn't want to do in the first place because it was hard and they did not understand it. Ever been there? But ultimately, God was glorified and their faith in Christ was strengthened because of Jesus delivering them from the storm. Does that sound familiar to anything you've ever gone through in your life? Friends, that's what we call sanctification. It's growing in Christ. <laughs> Genuine salvation is always followed by a process of growth, and growth comes through storms. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we're in a storm because of our disobedience. But notice that the disciples here were in a storm because of their obedience. You know that can happen too, don't you? Well, why would God do that? Because he loves his children and he wants us to grow. God will put you and I in hard scenarios so that he is glorified as we are matured in our faith. Just a word to parents. If you're raising your kids in your home right now, training your kids now to do hard stuff they don't want to do is preparing them for following Jesus later. We live in a culture where the mantra of parenting is, I just want my kids to be happy. And if you follow that line of thinking and exempt your kids from doing hard stuff, stuff they don't like, you're setting them up to be unfaithful to the Lord later on in their life because following Jesus ain't easy. He doesn't just save us, he grows us up. And he does that through storms. So in John 6, as the sun comes up that morning with the disciples now on the shore with Jesus, this account shifts to number two on your outline, the crowd's predictable confusion. The crowd's predictable confusion. That's really what we see in verses 22 through 24. Now this isn't the first time we've ever seen people be confused by Jesus. <laughs> when, when Jesus met with Nicodemus in John chapter three, Nicodemus was confused about what it meant to be born again. And when Jesus met with a Samaritan woman in John chapter four, she was confused about the living water that he was talking about. So the crowd here in John six is predictably confused. And once again, that's because the natural mind cannot understand the gospel. Only by an intervening work of grace by the Holy Spirit can anyone understand who Jesus is and what the good news is all about. 
So in this verse, we see their curiosity. Letter A would be their curiosity. The crowd here knew that the disciples had left in the boat late the night before and that Jesus wasn't with them when they left in the boat. So they're looking for him. And a couple of things happened overnight that piqued their curiosity. One, their desire to make him king didn't go away. And two, just like you and me this morning, they got hungry overnight again. But verse 23 also makes it clear that word had gotten out, apparently about the feast that Jesus had provided the day before, and now boats were arriving to that area from a different city, from Tiberias. People were coming to check Jesus out. So now it's a bigger crowd than the day before, and they're gonna pursue Jesus to wherever he's gone, and that's letter B on your outline. That's what verse 24 is all about, their pursuit. Once they figure out he's not there, look at what verse 24 says. It says, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Okay, so their curiosity prompts them to pursue Christ, at least on some level, right? And that seems to be a good thing, but we should also always keep in mind this when we see somebody seeking Jesus. And that is this, you and I don't know why they're interested in Christ. Again, apart from the intervening work of God in salvation, a depraved heart never truly seeks God. Romans 3, 10 and 11 states, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Also, as we've already seen in this study, it's good to be reminded that Jesus is never impressed with the size of a crowd. And he wouldn't be impressed with this crowd either. And we who follow him ought not be impressed with the size of a crowd. Church family, we should never equate numerical growth with spiritual health. Our prayer churches learned that lesson. We learned it the hard way. But numerical growth and spiritual health don't always travel together. God has given us stewardship over many things here at McGregor, but manipulating numerical outcomes ain't one of them. You know who controls the numerical outcomes of our church? The Lord of our church. The one who gave his life for this church. It's his church. And we are to be faithful stewards of what God has already said about his church in his word. Remember, Jesus is at the peak of his popularity here in John 6. So this really is the hinge point where from a human perspective, things start going downhill and not in a good way. Yogi Berra, the great baseball player and coach, once said, anyone who is popular is bound to be disliked. (laughs) Yogi was right. And the temptation of popularity is a trap that we must resist. They wanted to make him king. That's why he left and went to Capernaum. But they follow him there, and that's when we see, number three on your outline, the Lord's blunt confrontation. The Lord's blunt confrontation. Now, with verse 25, we see the beginning of what's called the bread of life sermon. And I'll just barely touch on it today as we finish. But we will dive into that sermon the next two Sundays. And this particular sermon begins here with the crowd asking Jesus a question, and that question reveals their self-perceived need. 
That's next on your outline. The crowd's self-perceived need. Look at their question in verse 25. What's their question? When did you come here? That's an interesting question. But it's the crowd's way of seeking a naturalistic explanation about how Jesus got to where he is in that moment. And to answer that question, what Jesus does is he references the day before when he fed everyone with bread because that miracle sets up this sermon. And so his answer to the crowd in verse 26 shows that he knows their hearts, doesn't he? Because it reveals that they wanted Jesus only to fix their temporary needs. Look at what he says. Look at verse 26 in your Bibles. You are seeking me, not because you saw signs. Okay, pause right there. Remember the purpose of a signpost miracle is not the miracle, but to point to the deity of Christ. He says, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I just love the fact that Jesus doesn't really answer their question. Their question was, hey, how'd you get here? And instead, what he does is he calls out their self-perceived need. They wanted Jesus because of the stuff he gave them the day before. And they completely missed the spiritual point of the miracle. See, the crowd only cared about the moment. Just like the average person on the planet today. They hoped Jesus would give him more bread. And they thought that was their most important need. But it wasn't. They wanted to extend their physical life, but they have absolutely no concern for eternal life. Again, just like the average person on the planet today. Do you realize that you're going to live forever? Just let that sink in. Every person will live in one of two places, heaven or hell, forever. And if you're outside of Christ, your greatest need is not what you think your greatest need is right now. Your greatest need is to escape the just wrath of a holy God against your sin. And the good news is, in his grace and mercy, God has provided a way for you to escape his wrath. And that way as a person, it's his son, Jesus Christ. And it would be our prayer today for you to turn from your sin and by faith trust in Jesus to save you. Our prayer would be that you be open to the Lord's correction. That's next on your outline. Letter B is the Lord's correction because that's what verse 27 is. Jesus corrects the crowds in verse 27, look at it with me. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Again, God has already made a provision for sinners to be saved and enjoy an eternity with him. And that provision is salvation in Christ. It's funny, Jesus essentially says to this crowd, look, you've been pursuing me all around this lake for bread something that's gonna go stale in a couple of days. And oh, by the way, even if you eat it, you're gonna be hungry the next morning. So don't pursue that. Instead, pursue me. Because I will give you an eternal provision that will satisfy your soul. And that's way more important than your stomach. What are you pursuing in life? Don't miss the Lord's correction here. 
We're to stop running after lesser things and turn from our sin and fall on the mercy of God to forgive us. He's made a way for us to be forgiven. This is the Lord's correction. But the crowd doesn't want the correction, do they? No, the crowd wants what they want, so they ask a faulty question. That's next on your outline. The crowd's faulty question can be found in verse 28. I want you to look in your Bibles at verse 28, and let's see what the question is. What must we, what, do? (laughs) If you know your Bible, does that sound familiar? It's similar to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 16 who asked Jesus, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? See, there's an instinct in all of us to earn it ourselves. What must we do? This is why grace is so scandalous. (laughs) Because grace rebuffs our arrogant thinking that surely there's something I can do to please God. There's not. We can't. Jesus has already said that this bread he gives is a gift from him that cannot be earned. But they insist, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Friends, their question is faulty because it's about earning. It's based in works righteousness. And it just shows that people everywhere and of all times are religious. Everyone is. We want to work for it. We think we must do more and try harder to make God happy, and that's not the Christian gospel. The gospel is not based on what we do. The gospel is based on what Christ has already done. That is the Lord's salvation. The last thing that we will cover, verse 29, look at what Jesus says in response. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Did you notice that in verse 28, that their question was about works plural. And Jesus' answer here in verse 29 is about a work, singular. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Tragically, most people think salvation is about piling up a religious resume of good things that they have done so that in the end, hopefully it'll matter. But Jesus' answer is about a work, singular. He says, no, this is the work of God that you believe. That statement is the opposite of every religious system known to mankind. We've said throughout this series of John that the theme is so that you may believe. And believing is something you and I get to participate in. But may we never forget that our believing in Christ is the work of God. Without Christ, we're dead in our sins. So even the ability to believe in salvation is a gift from God. It's not based on our efforts. It's a gift. It's a gift that's given in the person and work of Christ. It's a gift that's received by believing. And it's a gift that is the only thing that can satisfy the human soul. Jesus is the bread of life. And we'll talk more about that next Sunday. But if you're outside of Christ and you've never turned from your sin and placed your faith and trust in him, do not wait until next Sunday to respond to the gospel. We implore you to turn from your sin and believe in whom God has sent.